Please open your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 8, verses 7 to 13. Hebrews 8, verse 7. A new covenant. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. For finding fault with them, he says, Behold, days are coming, says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people." And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen, and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest of them. For I will be merciful to their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. When he said, A new covenant, he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this word, this word of a new covenant, that the promises of forgiveness, the promises of a changed heart, the promises of being called your people, the promise of not having our sins remembered against us anymore. Lord, only you can do this, only you can affect it, and only you can make sure that this happens deep within us, deep within our soul. Thank you, Lord, for this promise, for the new covenant, and especially because it is Christ coming his death and resurrection that has made this possible. Thank you for the blood of Christ that cleanses us from all sin. We ask you now, Lord, to help us to comprehend this great truth of your word, that it is the heart, the the soul, the inner man that you seek to convert and then manifest on the outside. Grant us better understanding of this truth. In the name of Christ, amen. In this chapter, Hebrews chapter 8, the Apostle has already said in the first six verses that the main point that he was making is the priesthood of Christ has to do with a heavenly priesthood. It has to do with heaven, not a priesthood of the earth. Now, in verses 7 to 13, his focus is on what this covenant is, the new covenant, which has to do with changing the person, changing the individual from the inside out, and granting this individual salvation, forgiveness of sins, that God is concerned about this first and foremost. And who is it that makes this covenant possible? Who is it that is accomplishing this kind of redemption for us? It is Christ. He has already said to us, it's Christ from chapter 7. He will continue to tell us it's Christ in chapters 9 and 10. And then at this point, he wants to drive home the point that his doctrine, his teaching, his assertions about this matter is not a new thing. It's not a novel doctrine. It's not something that he invented, but this is something that has always been known from the Old Testament, from the Old Testament onward and even future to us. So for all of the history of mankind, 
This is what God intends to do to everyone he redeems. He intends to do this. But it is accomplished, or it is possible, because of the coming of Christ, because of the death and resurrection of Christ. That's why he can call it a new covenant, because of what Christ does in order to redeem us and make us new people, make us redeemed people. Let's now see what he says about this. Verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. He says, he gives this covenant, or these covenants, names. First covenant and second covenant. What does he mean by that? Why would he call the Mosaic covenant, the old covenant, the covenant made at Mount Sinai, why would he call that the first covenant? And why does he call this one the second covenant? He calls it first and second, these two first and second, because, not because there was no covenant before the Mosaic Covenant. He doesn't mean that. Because obviously he knows that in the Garden of Eden, there was a covenant of works before sin came into the world. Obviously he knows Genesis 3.15, the covenant of grace, the coming of a promised Redeemer. Obviously he knows of the Noahic Covenant made with Noah and his descendants, and we are all beneficiaries of that in Genesis chapter 9, that God would not destroy the whole world in a flood of water again. Obviously, he knows of the Abrahamic covenant made in Genesis chapters 12 to 25. We know of that covenant, and he knows of that covenant. He even knows that Joshua in Joshua 24 made a covenant with the people, that the people promised that the Lord would be their God and that they would follow the law of Moses. He knows about all these covenants. So why would he say first and second? He's saying first and second because in the nation of Israel, this was the first and primary covenant that God made with them, the law of Moses. It's first in that sense, in the sense that he's comparing two covenants, this first one with Moses, and then the second one that Jeremiah announces. He's In his comparison is what he means by first and second covenant, not first in the Bible, or first chronologically. He's not meaning it that way. He's meaning, of these two covenants I'm talking about, this one occurred first, the Mosaic one, and then this other one, Jeremiah announces, is going to come when Christ comes. And it will be applied to us when Christ comes. This is what he means by first and second. We know he's talking about the old covenant and the new because not only... Do we see that in the following verses? But notice in verse 13, he says, When he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old, it is ready to disappear. So new covenant means second covenant, just like verse 7 and following. And then when he says the first one becomes obsolete, he's talking about the Mosaic covenant. The first one is the Mosaic covenant in his comparison, and the second is the new covenant. Then, back to verse 7. He says, If that first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. When he says, If it had been faultless, there would have been no occasion for a second, should that not be obvious? Should that not be obvious? When Moses delivered the covenant, the law of Moses on Sinai in 1500 B.C. 
He intended the people to obey the covenant. He commanded them to obey. By the word of the Lord, obey this covenant. Obey all the laws. Obey all of the 613 laws and their implications. Obey them all. He intended them to obey. So if he intended them to obey, the question arises, for their salvation or not? Why did he give that covenant to them? Was it for their salvation or not? Apparently no. Apparently not. Why? Because he says, if it was for their salvation, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Why announce the second covenant? Why announce the new covenant in Jeremiah's time if the law of Moses was all that God intended for not only the people of Israel, but anyone else in any other nation to obey? Why announce later in the time of Jeremiah? Moses lived in 1500 B.C. Jeremiah lived in 600 B.C. So we have 900 years that have passed. Why is it in the time of Jeremiah, 900 years after Moses, does Jeremiah the prophet, the true prophet of the Lord, why does he say that God is displeased with the people, God is displeased and he's going to make a new covenant? Why does he say new covenant? He says new covenant because that is the ultimate covenant. He says new covenant because that is the covenant of redemption in the sense that that's where our redemption lies, right there in that covenant. That's why. That means that Moses, a true prophet, and Jeremiah, a true prophet, are in harmony, not in contradiction. Moses and Jeremiah, both true prophets. Moses understood the role of the law of Moses, the role of the old covenant. And Jeremiah even understood the role of the law of Moses, the role of the old covenant. The problem was not in Moses and Jeremiah, and the problem was not in their true disciples whenever they preached and the true converts that they obtained. The problem wasn't among them. The problem was with the vast majority of the people of Israel. The vast majority of the people of Israel did not understand this distinction, did not, did not understand any of these things. Why? Because they, like all of us, we think about physical things, we think about the material world. We think about this day and the next day, what we're going to do, what we're going to put on, what we're going to eat, where we're going to live, how much money we're going to make, whether people like us or not. We think about all these things all the time. And that's what the people were doing, and they did not contemplate correctly. They did not discern correctly the difference between the Law of Moses and the New Covenant. They did not understand spiritual truths. They weren't thinking about the unseen world. They weren't thinking about their soul. They were just thinking about their body, their physical body. Because they weren't thinking about their soul, there was a need for the second covenant or the new covenant. Now, the fault is not in the covenant itself. In and of itself, there is nothing wrong with the law of Moses. Let's make that clear. The law of Moses was the word of God, was it not? Exodus chapter 19. God calls Moses up on the mountain and God actually delivers the word. So they are the words of God. So there's no fault like that. As well, in Romans chapter 7, the Apostle Paul clarifies the fault is not with the law itself, the words themselves. Notice, 
Romans chapter 7, Romans 7, verse 12. Romans 7, 12, he says, So then, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. And then in verse 14, he says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Therein lies the problem. You see, when he says, the first, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion sought for a second. Well, then the question is, what does he mean that there was some deficiency in that first covenant? What does he mean? Verse 8. Hebrews 8, 8. For finding fault with them, he says. Finding fault with them, he says. What was the problem with the first covenant? The problem with the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, was not in and of itself, no laws were evil, no laws were unclear, no laws were deficient in any way. The laws were there. The deficiency was in what it commanded the people to do. It commanded them to obey them all or face death. Or if they had transgressed even one law, to face death. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Galatians 3, 11, at 10. And then he says, for the righteous man shall live by faith. Galatians 3, 10 and 11. This is what he's saying. He's saying the law expected them to obey, but they could not obey. So then he has to find fault with them, not the law. God finds fault with the people who are unable to obey the law. Not with the law itself, but the people's inability to follow the law. He finds fault with them. What did they not understand? They did not understand the proper place of the law. In order to understand that, turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, the proper place of the law. Romans 3, 19. Romans 3.19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes a knowledge of sin. This is what the law is teaching. It's saying that we are all supposed to keep our mouths closed that means it's supposed to keep us humble and it's supposed to keep us accountable to God. No flesh is supposed to be justified by doing anything in it, but the law tells us about our sin. Why did he give the law? In order to give greater and greater clarity to the people's sin. We see what the law says so that we might know more and more about our sin. That's why the law was given. Furthermore, furthermore, he says in Galatians chapter 3, Galatians chapter 3, verse 10. Galatians 3, verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. 
Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. We note here that the Apostle Paul quotes three passages from the Old Testament in Galatians 3, 10 to 12. Firstly, he quotes Deuteronomy 27, 26. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. That one assertion made by Moses when he delivered the law in Deuteronomy 27, 26, he's telling the people, yes, I delivered all this to you. You're supposed to obey it, but I'm also putting you under a curse if you don't keep it all. Which means if they broke one law, they're under a curse. Moses told him that. He understood that, and he explained it to them clearly. We're under a curse for not keeping even one. Then, verse 11. Now that no one is justified by law before God is evident. It's plain. I'm not hiding it. I'm not talking in secret and in dark sayings. I'm telling you clearly, openly, it's evident. It's obvious. Why? For the righteous man shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. Habakkuk the prophet, also a, a contemporary of Jeremiah, 600 B.C., Habakkuk the prophet says the same thing. You're not going to have life, eternal life, by obeying the law. It will be by faith. He doesn't say specifically in that verse, by faith in whom, but it is obviously faith in Christ. Faith in Christ. So he says that's the way to be saved, not by obedience to the law, but by faith in Christ. And then verse 12, however, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. The law was intended to drive us to faith in Christ, not to be the means of our salvation, because we cannot obey those laws. We cannot obey any of the 613 laws. We cannot obey the Ten Commandments. We cannot obey the two greatest commandments, to love God and to love our neighbor as ourselves. We cannot obey any of this. We cannot. So if we cannot, the fault is with us for our inability to obey God. Our inability to obey Him. Remember, Adam and Eve, without any sin in their life, could not even obey one commandment. The one commandment to avoid the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They could not do it. They couldn't do it at all with just one commandment, without sin. Therefore, what makes us think, as these verses make it clear, how can we obey even one with sin in our life, being sinful people that we are? There's no way. And all of this is pointing out to the, uh, the fact that God finds fault with us, not in what he has set up with his covenants, but with us. That's why it says in verse 8, Hebrews 8, 8, for finding fault with them. Because they could not keep it, they did not want to keep it, and therefore there's a curse on them, they have death. God says, I will take care of that. Notice verse 8. He says, for finding fault with them, he says, behold, days are coming says the Lord, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Firstly, we notice in verse 8, he says, days are coming. Days are coming. And in verse 10, after those days. 
These are ways in the prophets, when the prophets speak of the last days, those days, days are coming, after those days, all of these kinds of expressions have to do with events related to the first coming of Christ, this intermediate period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ, and also those events that deal with the second coming of Christ. So, the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and this intermediate period, days, these are those days. That's what the Bible means most often in the prophets. And that's what Jeremiah meant. That's why in Matthew 26, Jesus says, this is the blood of the new covenant. This is my blood, which is shed for you, for the forgiveness of many, for the forgiveness of our sins. So these days in the prophets are speaking of the days between the first and the second coming of Christ. An example of this in Hebrews is Hebrews chapter 1, Hebrews 1, verse 2, where he says, In these last days has spoken to us in his Son. In the last days, when did the last days start? When the Son of God came in his incarnation. When the Son of God first came, his first coming. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son. So, Jeremiah predicts, when Christ comes, God will have this covenant established as the means of not finding fault with us anymore, as the means of forgiving us of our sins. So notice verse 8, Hebrews 8.8. 8. When these days come, says the Lord, I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Did you notice that? Who is going to effect it? Who is going to accomplish it? Who is going to establish it? It sounds to me like it's a one-way street. It's confirmed in verse 10. I will make, he says, I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my laws into their minds. I will write them upon their hearts. I will be their God. God is the one doing it. And also verse 12. I will be merciful. I will remember their sins no more. This is a one-way transaction. God is the one who originates it. God is the one who accomplishes it. God is the one that secures it in us. God, God, and God alone. This is known as monergism. Monergism, that is, only the work of God. Only the work of God. Not synergism or cooperation. God does not cooperate with us. He does not sit us at the table and strike a deal with us. He does not say, let's come halfway. He does not do it that way. God, when he redeems us, he changes our stony hearts by his will. He affects it. He makes it happen. He changes us. It's a one-way street. By his gracious and sovereign power. Notice also verse 8. It's called a new covenant. A new covenant. This is the only place, Jeremiah 31, 31 to 33, this passage, is the only, which is quoted in our text, Hebrews 8, it's the only place in the Old Testament where this is called the new covenant. In the New Testament, it occurs several times, but in Jeremiah, that's the only place. This new covenant is known by different names. Isaiah, Ezekiel, and even Jeremiah call it by these various other names. They call it... Jeremiah does the new covenant, but it's also known as the covenant of peace. It's called the everlasting covenant. 
And over history, theologians have called it the covenant of grace. The covenant of grace. This is the only means of our salvation. So who is it that inaugurates it? Who is it that accomplishes it? Who is it that makes this covenant possible for God to be at peace with us? You see, covenants have to do with two parties, right? When two parties, they are trying to be of one mind on an issue, a covenant is necessary to be established. But in this case, uniquely, God is the one that originates it and makes sure that the second party, that is us, that we are at peace with him and that we will be established in this permanently, in this relationship, in this covenant. It is God and God alone who does it. That's why it's called an everlasting covenant, covenant of peace. And then, why is it called new covenant? Why is it called new covenant? You might recall when we read Psalm 98, there he said, let's sing a new song. Let us sing a new song. Well, what is it to sing a new song? I think we might also go and see in Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 5, verse 9. I submit that a new song is a song of redemption. That is the context of Psalm 98 because they're celebrating salvation, celebrating salvation. And Revelation 5, verse 9, notice this is a scene in heaven. And it says in Revelation 5, 9, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Who is able to sing this new song? They're able to sing this new song because they are redeemed. Only the redeemed sing a new song. So a new song or new covenant has to do with redemption because we have an old nature, now we will have a new nature. And why do we have a new nature? Because we are redeemed. We are converted. We are transformed. We are new creatures in Christ. We are new creations in Christ. That's why it's called new. New in that sense. That's who we are. Then specifically, who are we? Verse 8. Verse 8 says, With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. With the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And in verse 10, he says in shorthand, he says, With the house of Israel. With the, what does he mean? With whom is he making this covenant? Who, is, who will be the beneficiaries of this covenant? Certainly he does not mean every individual who is a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He does not mean it that way. We know he doesn't mean it that way because we know Ishmael is outside of this covenant. We know Esau is outside of this covenant. We know all of the 20 evil kings of the 10 northern tribes. They're all called evil from Jeroboam all the way to the last one and until that kingdom was destroyed by the Assyrians. We know all of those kings were evil. They were reprobate and wicked people. So there is no salvation for them, yet they are descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So we know God did not mean that every individual in Israel will be saved or in Judah will be saved. 
If he did not mean it that way, he meant it in the sense of the elect in Israel and Judah. And not only if it's the elect in Israel and Judah, but whoever else becomes a son of Abraham by faith in Christ. Whoever else among all the nations of the world becomes a son of Abraham by faith in Christ. That's the sense in which he meant it. Now, to support that interpretation, to support that interpretation, we may go to Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 9, where he says, starting at verse 24, he says that we have been called, called to salvation. 9.24, he says, even us, and who is the us? Whom he also called, not from among Jews only, that means physically Jews, but also from among Gentiles. Then he proves it with quotes from Hosea and Isaiah. Firstly, in verse 25, as he says also in Hosea, I will call those who were not my people my people, and her who was not beloved, beloved. And it shall be that in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. For the Lord will execute his word upon the earth thoroughly and quickly. And just as Isaiah foretold, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left to us a posterity, we would have become as Sodom and would have resembled Gomorrah. What does he mean here by quoting these two prophets? He's saying, there are those people, meaning Gentiles, who have never been called my people. They will be called my people. They never were called beloved people of God, but now they will be called beloved. They were never called sons of the living God, but now those people, those Gentiles, among all the nations, they will be called sons of the living God. And then Isaiah, he says... Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. The physical population of the sons of Israel is innumerable like the sand of the sea. The physical descendants are that way, but the remnant of them, meaning the elect, Romans 9 is uh, an elaborate discussion of election. The elect among the people of Israel, they are the ones who will be saved. Not every one of them, but the elect among them. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith that are sons of Abraham. From Galatians 3, verse 9. So, this is what he means by the house of Israel and Judah. The elect remnant among the physical Jews and then the elect remnant among all the nations. These are the ones who will benefit from this. Then, further description of what this covenant is. Verse 9. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. This covenant that I'm about to make is not going to be like the old covenant. That's his description of it. It's this covenant that God made with them when he guided them by his powerful hand out of Egypt and led them to Sinai. That's when he established this Mosaic, Sinaitic, old covenant, first covenant. That's when he established it with them. He established it at that time. 
So then the question is, what was unique to that covenant that is inapplicable or obsolete, as he says in verse 13? Now, what was it that he commanded them to do that is now obsolete and inapplicable today? Well, that would be the ritual law. That would be the ceremonial law. That would be the sacrificial law. All that God had instituted for festivals, all that he had instituted for sacrifices on the altar of the tabernacle and temple, everything related to the sacrificial system of the Mosaic law was for the nation to obey. And so he says, it's not going to be like that covenant in that way. There will not be any more rituals like that. That's one sense in which it is unique or different, the old and the new. A second reason, or a second way in which it is unique, is verse 9 at the last part of it. He says, For they did not continue in my covenant, and I did not care for them, says the Lord. Because they did not and could not obey it all. They could not continue in it. They could not abide in it. They could not live perfectly in it. They could not do it. They had an inability to carry out everything God told him. So this, this new covenant I established won't be like that. I'm not going to say, this is what all you need to do. And if you do all of this, you can be saved from your sins, have forgiveness of sins. I'm not going to say it that way. It's not going to be that way with the new covenant. And then a word of clarification, verse 9. I did not care for them. He's not saying he never cared for them. What he's saying is, because of their disobedience to it, they became despicable creatures to me. They became detestable to me. I loathed them. I loathed that generation, as he says in Psalm 95, uh, 7 to 11. He loathed them. They, they were just repugnant to him because they would not keep his holy commandments. That's the sense in which he says, I did not care for them. I was ready to throw them away. Verse 10. So how is the new covenant different? For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds, and I will write them upon their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Here he says, I will put my laws into their minds and hearts. He's talking about the internal nature of man. He's talking about the inner man. He's talking about the soul of man. He's saying that our souls, also created by God, our souls don't have this kind of ability, this kind of desire to obey God. So God is going to transform it. God is going to change it. God is going to reform it. He's going to convert it. As it says in Psalm 23, He restores my soul, or He converts my soul. God converts our soul. He will make sure that the soul is converted. Now, why would this be necessary? Because naturally, when we're born into the world, we have an insensitive soul. We have a dead heart. We have a physically living heart, but spiritually we have a dead heart when we are born into the world. We have hearts that are comparable to stones, to hard stones. 
insensitive, cannot be penetrated. Stones that will not do what needs to be done. They will not be responsive. They just sit there. This is the way we are, naturally, without faith in Christ or without a changed heart. This is the way we are. We are this way from birth. Have you ever wondered why? You could tell somebody something spiritual, something true in the Bible, and that perhaps this has even happened in your own experience. You could tell somebody a hundred times the clear teaching of the Bible about Christ. You could say that to a hundred times to a person. Whether it's a hundred times in an hour, or a hundred times over ten days, or a hundred times over a longer period of time, you could tell them a thousand times. You could tell them a hundred thousand times. And there's no response. There's no change. They're insensitive. They're, it just goes over their head. They look at you. They stare at you. They gape at you. They have no clue about what you're saying. And they have no interest to find out what you're saying. Not only do they not comprehend it, but they have no conviction or desire to understand, what do you mean, sir? They don't even ask that question. They don't want to know. Well, all of us, to one level or another, we are just like that, in our natural condition. This is why when God said through Moses to obey all of these laws, the people could not and would not do so. And they constantly, under Moses, kept carping and griping against him, against him in that wilderness for 40 years, even though miracles were happening almost every day, they kept on carping and grumbling against him about everything because they were fixated on the physical, even though Moses kept saying, I'm using this physical as an illustration of the spiritual, just as Jesus spoke in parables about physical realities to explain spiritual realities, Moses did the same with the rituals of the law. And yet they couldn't get it. They wouldn't get it. Because their hearts, their inner man, was dead, stony, insensitive. That's why nothing came out from within and said that they wanted to obey God. They did not wake up one day and say, I'm going to love God today and love Him for the rest of my life. No, we don't wake up saying that. Unless God first does this. If he puts his law inside of us, that means, this is figuratively, spiritually speaking, if he does that, he takes that which was insensitive about us, lifeless about us, inside of us, he changes that, and then we well up, and we have this peace, we have this reconciliation, we have redemption, we say, I want to please God. I want to glorify God. This often, it takes affliction or humility, a tragedy, something serious that happens to us before many of us wake up. It's not that way in every single case, such as when it happens to a child and even sometimes to an adult. Not in every single case, but there is a change in terms of awareness and desire to love God and please God, that, ha that happens. But when that does happen, whether it happens through tragedy and great humiliation or not, it still happens because God is the one who puts the law and writes the law on the heart. It is God who does so 
by His Holy Spirit. And when He does it, He becomes our God and we become His people. Then we know I have peace with God. Then we know I have been forgiven of my sins. Then we know I want nothing in this world. I just want to know Christ. I want the Word of Christ. I want the Gospel of Christ. I want to build, put my life in the life of other people. I want them to be raised up in the faith. That's all that we care about. That's all we want. We pray for our children. We pray for our grandchildren. We do whatever it takes if we are unreconciled to them to get reconciled to them. Whatever has happened, whatever kinds of conflicts and tragedies have happened, we seek to repair them. That's the new nature. That's the new creation. That's what happens when God changes us. And we now belong to Him. Furthermore, verse 11, notice what he says. And they shall not teach everyone his fellow citizen and everyone his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least of them to the greatest of them. He's saying here that this is not going to be a matter of you must know God, you must know God, as though it is something on the outside and external that transforms the person. Yes, we need the Word of God, but what is the ultimate trigger? What is the ultimate reason? What is the supreme reason that somebody does, in fact, believe the Word of God that's preached? It's not in the Word that you must know the Lord, but what God does to change the person on the inside. The Lord Jesus said this in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verses 44 and 45. John 6 and verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Here Jesus clarifies. He says, no one is able to come. No one can come to Christ. Coming to Christ means to believe in Christ. John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. No one can come or believe in Christ unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Then he proves what he's saying. He proves his assertion by quoting two places in the prophets. One is Jeremiah 31, Jeremiah 31 and verse 34, and the other is Isaiah 54, verse 13. He takes a phrase from Jeremiah and a phrase from Isaiah, he conflates them, brings them together, and he says, and they all shall be taught of God. That's our verse in Hebrews 8. That's a part of our verse in Hebrews 8. What does that mean? What did the prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah mean? They meant everyone who has heard and learned from the Father. Meaning, God puts the law on their heart. He makes them aware. He gives them comprehension. He gives them a desire to be redeemed and be forgiven of sins. He exposes them, shows them the glory of God. He does all this. And when God does this, then they come to me. Then they believe. So the heart has to be changed, and then they believe. That's the sequence. That's what Jeremiah meant, quoted in Hebrews 8, and that's what Jesus means here. He's saying, we don't have to say it that way, because God will do it. God will make it happen, 
so that the heart is changed and they know me. Furthermore, it says, from the least of them to the greatest of them. This is a phrase several times in the Old Testament. This is the most known. From the least of them to the greatest of them. How does redemption work? Or who are the beneficiaries of it? Is it all only the handsome of the world? Is it only the rich of the world? Is it only the famous of the world? Is it only men? Or is it only the tribes of Israel? Or is it only some other tribe or some other nation in the world? Does it depend on the color of the skin? Does it depend on whether you are an adult or a child? Does it depend on whether you are male or female? No, it doesn't. God does this kind of redemption. He works this kind of re redemption, affects this kind of redemption from the least of the people to the greatest of the people. Whatever their human stature is, whatever their rank is in human affairs, that doesn't matter. From the least of the people to the greatest of the people, God is about changing people from all spheres of life, all strata of life. God is about doing that. He's about changing people like that. This is what James says in James 2. Remember in James 2 when he says, faith without works is dead? Who are the two examples he uses at the end of James chapter 2? To say that these two individuals had true faith and they were manifested in their works. Who were those two individuals? And why did James use those two individuals? I think in order to illustrate from the least of them to the greatest of them. Who were they? Abraham, the father of the Jewish race. He used Abraham. He was a rich man. He was uh, a, a, a man, a father of the faith, father of the Jewish people, physically speaking. He was rich. He was powerful. He was influential. A lot of the people who followed him uh, they respected him and honored him. That's who he was. The promises were given to him. The promises of God. And he had true faith manifested in his works. And then the second individual was Rahab. Rahab, she's known in the Bible, even in the New Testament, as Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute. Notice that. Not that she continued in her prostitution. She didn't continue in her sexual sins after her conversion, but that's how she was known. And why was she known like that? So that it would be a constant reminder of the grace of God in her life. Now notice, who was Rahab? She was a woman. She was a Canaanitess. She was not from the people of Israel. She was a Canaanitess from the people that were supposed to be destroyed when Joshua conquered the land of Canaan. She was among them. And she was of ill repute. She was a gross sinner, practicing sexual immorality. All of that, right? And what did God do graciously in her life? She married a man of Israel, and she became an ancestress of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 1. Rahab, Rahab the harlot, God transformed her and used her by his grace to be an ancestress of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of thing God is doing. From the least of them to the greatest of them. That means it doesn't matter who we are. 
as long as the grace of God is effective in our life and we have faith and we demonstrate our faith by our works, God's, that's all God wants. He's pleased with those kinds of people to be known as his people or his bride, his children. That's all God wants. Then, the announcement of forgiveness. Verse 12. For I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. He says, again, a one-way street. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. God extends mercy. God is the great judge, the judge of heaven. And as the judge of heaven, he has the right to sentence us to punishment, to condemn us forever. But mercy is not receiving the justice of God. We don't receive the justice of God because in Christ there is forgiveness. In Christ all our iniquities, all transgressions, trespasses, however you want to describe our alienation from God, our disobedience to God, whatever we have done are forgiven. He says he'll be merciful and he'll remember their sins no more. No more. This, does, this means that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. There is no condemnation. If we are in him, he has been merciful and he won't remember our sins against us anymore. He will, will not hold us accountable because we're all redeemed in Christ. We have redemption. This one statement itself shows that salvation has to originate from God and it has to be something God himself does for us. It has to be done in Christ. It has to do with eternity. All of these are implications of this statement. I will be merciful to their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Because if he was talking about just, just one day, the day that he wants to forgive us is the only day that's important. Or let's say he's only going to forgive the sins that we committed three days ago or five days ago, but not any other sins, there's another way, he wouldn't have said it like this. He's saying it this way to emphasize the fact that once he has forgiven us, once we are in Christ, that's all we need. That's all we need in. And that's all anybody else needs. And then one clarification on verse 12. When he says, I will remember their sins no more, from passages like this one, some have misunderstood and said, God forgets our iniquity in the literal sense. In the literal sense, they think that once he forgives us, in, somehow, in, in some way, somehow, in God's mind, he just wipes his mind and he doesn't even remember that we used to sin or that we did sin. He doesn't even remember it in a very literal way. But that's not what the prophet meant. For example, in Ezekiel 18.22, Ezekiel uses the preposition in Ezekiel 18.22 to say that he will not remember our sins against us. He says against us, meaning he will not hold us accountable. On the day of judgment, he's not going to demand that we pay what we owe him. Ezekiel 18, 22. All his sins which he has committed will not be remembered against him because of his righteousness which he has practiced 
he will live. The sins will not be remembered against him, he says. Meaning, on that day of judgment, I will not hold you accountable. That's the sense in which he won't remember our sins. Not in the literal sense that information is wiped away from the mind of God. That is never possible, because God is eternal. He's omniscient, omnipotent, and omnipresent. So, if all of this is true, and Jeremiah said, 600 years before the apostle wrote this, if Jeremiah said all this, verse 13, when he said a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. But whatever is becoming obsolete and and growing old is ready to disappear. If it becomes obsolete, if it is abolished, if it's ready to disappear, what would make us think that we still need to follow it? That is the basic problem. See, the Jews were saying, okay, now that Christ has come, you've added another aspect to our faith. You've added a spiritual component to our faith. You've added something different to our faith. Okay, let's accept that, but we still need to do everything else. We still need to find a salvation or ensure our salvation is by our works, our works of the law, by all of the rituals of the law. So it was the law plus Christ, or Christ plus the law. That's the issue that he's dealing with. That is the problem. It's the heresy he's dealing with that you could say faith in Christ plus anything, plus any work whether it's circumcision, whether it's sacrifices, whether it's baptism, whether it's church attendance, whether it's church membership, whatever it may be, we have in our mind a constant desire to say Christ plus something else, when it should not ever be that way. It's only Christ. Our hope, our satisfaction, our confidence is only Christ. Christ and Christ alone. So it should not be a surprise that the first Covenant, the old covenant, becomes obsolete. It passes away. It's unnecessary. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for all of these truths that you have announced to us by this word. Lord, we ask that all of us who hear this word would understand it truly, that we would not be any of those who have a dead heart, an insensitive heart, but we pray that all of us, us and our loved ones, and wherever we go, that the people we encounter will be converted, will have new hearts, and forgiveness of sins. Give that to us. Thank you that it is accomplished in Christ. Christ only is our Redeemer, the one and only, our great Savior and Redeemer. Thank you for sending him, and thank you for this covenant. In his name we pray. Amen.